Okay, everyone. Well, it's uh, my privilege this morning to introduce our, our guest speaker. Uh, we have with us this morning a guy called Julian Lidstone. I've uh, been making you aware of this event for some time now. Uh, Julian's going to be speaking on the subject of how to love my Muslim neighbor, which is a really interesting and topical theme. Uh, Julian's very uh, able to speak on this subject because Julian is currently an area coordinator for Operation Mobilization. Uh, he's worked himself in Turkey, I think, for about 15 years, and in India also. Uh, he's got a lot of, he's got a wealth of experience uh, to share. And we've heard him before. He's been here a couple of years ago. He's taught at our college as well. He's a good friend of the ministry. And I just want to welcome uh, Julian. I'd appreciate you if you would help me along with, with that. Let's welcome Julian Lidstone this morning. Thank you for your warm welcome. I really enjoy being in Destiny. Actually, it was four years ago that I was last with you guys, and at that time we were in the cinema in Leaf, and since then you've got this wonderful facility. I want to congratulate you on this. I always enjoy being with Destiny because I find this excitement here, this dynamism that you're going somewhere, and it's a great opportunity and a privilege for me to be able to share my heart for uh, Muslims, like Graham said. Uh, that's been the story of my life. I started mission in India back in the 70s when I was a new Christian, met Muslims there, and then married Lena in Glasgow, and we went to Turkey together in 1980, spent 15 years planting churches in Turkey. Actually, I just came back from Turkey last night, so a bit weary. And uh, since then, we came back from Turkey in 95 and were involved with Iranians in Glasgow and were part of God starting a church among Iranians in Glasgow. Muslims are coming to faith around the world. It's not a negative picture. A lot of people look at the media and they think, whoa, bad news. These people are coming to get us. They're going to take us over. It's just despair and fear. That's not true. God is doing great things. It's not a bad uh, outlook. There's opportunity that I want to talk about with you today. Islam. First slide, please. Defining image of the 21st century, 9-11. That has set the course for most of this century. And then, of course, in 7th of July, 2007, we had bombs in London. And then in 2008, it came to Scotland. And our very own Glasgow airport gave John Smeaton the opportunity to become a local hero you're no doing that here, Paul. <laughs> a Scottish response to Islam. <laughs> Quarter of the world's population is Muslim. That's a growing percentage. The, even the British government is, is worried about what's happening. It's, there's a phenomenon that they call parallel communities. That means people living together in the same town but not knowing each other, not talking to each other. Uh, I see it in Glasgow. We live in Glasgow, and you've got lots, of course, Pakistani corner shops. Very useful when you run out of milk at 11 o'clock at night. You can get milk there because they keep much longer hours than Scottish shops. But do we visit each other's home? Do our kids play together? Do we marry each other? No. Separate, parallel communities. So we've got a growing population of Muslims in the world, growing population of Muslims in the UK. We've got terror. We've got parallel communities. What is the Christian response? 
for a lot of Christians, their response is just the same as everyone else. Some people call it Islamophobia. The simple biblical word is fear. There's a stereotype of a terrorist with a beard and a bomb. They are scary. We don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to relate. We're suspicious. We're afraid. A friend of mine, Bert de Reuter in Holland, did his PhD on this and found that actually Christians are just as likely as the rest of the population to have those kind of uh, reactions, those fears. How are we as Christians meant to respond to Muslims, loving your Muslim neighbor? Why? Well, the first thing, the next slide, is a sweet picture of two Afghan girls. These are nice people. (laughs) Let's just get simple and basic. Let's take away the stereotype. Let's take away the cartoon. Let's just relate to individuals. When we were living in Turkey, a friend of ours was visiting. Her name was Teresa. She went downtown to do some shopping. She caught the bus to come back to our house to pick up a case to go to the airport. We'd given her the name of our bus stop on a piece of paper, right? On the bus, trying to remember where to get off, misses the stop. With mounting panic, she realizes stop after stop after stop, help, where am I? Comes to the end of the line, everybody else gets off the bus. Ah! Gonna miss my plane. And somehow or other, she manages to communicate that, maybe, ah! Oh, ah! You know what happened? This guy, the bus driver, empty bus, city bus, indicates to hop on, turns his bus around, empty bus, and drives it to the stop. Now, I invite you to imagine that happening in Edinburgh. (laughs) Lothian bus comes to the end of the line, person with brown-colored skin, with very bad English, somehow says, help. And the bus driver sets aside his lunch break, empty city bus, drive, no no way, it's not going to happen, is it? Isn't it beautiful? It's great. There are lots of stories like that. When you get out of your own culture, you meet with other people, mix with other people. These are not Muslims more than anything else. They're just people. Just people. One of our friends in Glasgow was doing an outreach in an area called Pollock Shields, which is where most of the Pakistanis live. And these Pakistani lads, hey, you know, this is our turf pile. What are you doing here? Come up to him and, hey, what do you think of Islam? And Daryl, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just said, hey man, I love Muslims. You know, the question, what do you think of Islam? Let's have a debate. Christianity against Islam. Quran against Bible. And Daryl just says, no man, I don't want to talk about that stuff. I want to say, I love Muslims. I love you. I want to relate to you as a person made in God's image with unique aspirations, with unique hopes, with unique needs, with unique fears. Let's just sit and talk. Another big British missiologist was asked, what should we do about Muslims? And his answer was, well, let's drink tea together. 
What do you say to Muslims? Was another question he was asked. How are you? Right? <laughs> How do you start to talk to somebody? You say, how are you? Let's just get past the big bogeyman and all the religious furniture. I just say, you're a person. I want to relate to you. I want to know you. I want to come alongside you. Islam, actually, I-S-L-A-M. Do you know what it stands for? I should love all Muslims. <laughs> now, for some Christians, that's kind of, I love Muslims. That's a little bit difficult. It's a, kind of a catch. I should love all Muslims. But what does God say? God so loved the world. 25% of the world is Muslim. So, I should love all Muslims. Love your neighbor as yourself. God, Jesus said that about a Samaritan. Samaritans were scary. They were different. There was tension. There was hostility. There was misunderstanding. But Jesus said, love your neighbor. I should love. Oh, that has to be the primary Christian response. Could we say that? I should love all Muslims. Let's hear it. I should love all Muslims. Let me hear it again. Say it to each other. Thank you. Muslims as people, people to be loved. I want to talk about Muslims as a culture, Muslim cultures. Because the reason that bus driver in Izmir did that, of course, was that he was from a different culture. It wasn't so much just him, it was where he was coming from. He was coming from a culture of people who value hospitality. And my friend Teresa was a guest in his country. And it wasn't just that she was, a, a, and that points up something else, that he's from a relational group culture. She's in my country. Because she's in my country, I have a responsibility on behalf of my people to make sure she is looked after. So I'm part of this nation and as part of this nation, I have a responsibility to be hospitable. It's a whole different mindset. It's not just me. It's my people. And for my people, looking after a, a guest, being hospitable, being generous, is incredibly important. Being hospitable to a guest isn't a hassle. When the doorbell rings at night for Middle Eastern people, for Asian people, it's not, oh, no. I wanted to watch Friends tonight and somebody's turned up. I'm going to have to be nice to them. Oh, rats. Which is a, sometimes a British response. <laughs> the Middle East response is, hey, guests, great, wonderful, joy, honor, privilege. Now, what was Jesus? Remember what Jesus did when 5,000 people turned up? He said what every other Middle Easterner says, you're not leaving till I've fed you. <laughs> 5,000 people, no bother, we'll feed you. Because I'm the host here. You see, relating to people from different cultures actually enriches you. Enriches your faith. Gives you insight into the Bible that, that you know and love and read. So we're talking about cultures. We're talking about different cultures. 
And often cultures enrich, but often cultures clash. I just had a fascinating conversation yesterday. I was on the flight back from Istanbul, and the uh, lady sitting next to me turned out to be Flight Lieutenant Davina, who has just come back from seven-month tour in Helmand. And uh, in Helmand, her, she was with something called the Political Stabilization Group, and she was in Helmand doing stuff like uh, economic help, getting vegetable gardens planted, women's empowerment, training Afghan police ladies. Quite amazing. This illiterate Afghan lady on the firing range with her kids because there's no childcare, and Davina's teaching her how to hold a pistol. <laughs> and this lady's waving it around, and it's a bit scary. <laughs> but Davina turned up at the office, the British Army office in Lashkar, chief city of Helmand, and guess what it was full of? Pinups of naked ladies. And she said to the guys, because Davina has some kind of faith, hey, we're trying to tell these Afghans to educate their women. We're trying to tell them to develop their country. They need to empower their women. And look what you're telling them. This is what our women are about. And you think Afghans are going to want to educate their women if it means they become Western and then they get pictures taken of themselves and people ogle them and you know, they become sex objects. Is, is, do you think Afghan men are attracted by that? So Davina got all the pinups taken down in the office in Alaska. Hey, talk about culture clash. She said the British forces in Afghanistan, you won't be surprised to hear. At least they don't have alcohol. I'm glad about that. But they do have you know, naked women all over the place. And we think we've got you know, so much to give. We are the enlightened, advanced, civilized people who are going to enable these poor, backward, benighted Afghans to develop as a society. And they look at us and think, no thanks. That is a huge issue in the world today. We need to understand this. I've talked to Pakistanis in Glasgow, and they say, you want me to become Christian? You know what Christian means? I come in to my shop, open up on a Monday morning, and there's vomit all over the step because some Scotsman has thrown up. That's Christianity, he thinks. That's what he sees. So they think we're trying to impose our culture on them. They think of Hollywood, MTV, globalization, which is undermining, taking away their heritage, traditional values. It's threatening. It's undermining their identity. The things that their cultures have valued for generations, like modesty like family. And of course, we feel the same. It's very interesting. Relationships, you know when relationships break down, usually it's reciprocal, it's mirror. I don't trust you, you don't trust me. I'm afraid of you, you're afraid of me. Hey guys, it's the same with communities. They think that, we think they're trying to impose on us, they think we're trying to impose on them. We're afraid of them, because they're coming with bombs? What do they think? 
Afghanistan, Iraq, Palestine. You accuse us of being violent? Now, I'm not trying to justify, I'm not trying to say who's right. I'm just trying to help you understand how people feel. There's this clash, misunderstanding, fear. I want to address a couple of the fears I often bump into. How many are the Muslims coming to take over Britain? Next slide, please. Here's a picture. This this was in The Economist. Map of Europe in five years' time. Britain is now North Pakistan. Germany is New Turkey. Spain has become the Moorish Emirate of Iberia. (laughs) Right? This is the demographic reality. They're going to take over. They're breeding like rabbits. They're pouring in within 10, 20 years. This is going to be Sharia law in the UK. Right. Next slide. How many Muslims, what percentage of the British population is actually Muslim? Is it less than 2%? Is it between 2 and 5%? Is it more than 5%? 5 to 10%? Or is it more than 10%? Who thinks it's less than 2%? Who thinks it's between 2 and 5%? Muslim population of the UK. Great. Who thinks it's between 5 and 10%? Great. Who thinks it's more than 10%? Quite a few of you. Answer, according to the last census, is 3%. Not as much as many people think. Now, there's a lot of different colored faces around, but not all of them are Muslim. That's one reason people get things slightly out out of perspective, out of proportion. Another thing is we think, well, Muslim families breed like rabbits, lots of kids. (laughs) You know what? When they come to Britain, guess what? They become British. First generation maybe has five kids. Second generation, how many? Two. Because they're British. You know? Like us. So family sizes, although back home they might have larger families when they come here, Family size decreases, population rate of increase also decreases. So let's not exaggerate. There is an issue. There are social tensions, but it's not helped by getting it out of proportion. Next one. This is, I met this lady a couple of years ago at a conference in Yale, Dahlia Mogahed. Fascinating lady. Egyptian, came to the States. Dad brought the family to the States. Dad wanted them to fit into American society. We're going to become rich. We're going to become prosperous. So he didn't want his daughters to cover up. But then when Dahlia was at high school, she started to feel, hey, I'm Muslim. I need to be authentic. I need to be uh, real. I need to own who I am. So she decided to put on a head covering at an American high school. Guess how that went down the next day. How do you feel about that? Actually... Respect is what I felt because she had the courage to live out her convictions. I wish more Christian kids had that kind of bottle in school. And now she's a professor and she works with Gallup opinion polls 
she did some stuff on how widespread, how many Muslims are fundamentalist. And she assessed that by asking folk, do you support the terror attack of 9-11? She thought that would be a good marker of understanding how many people are radical extremists. And uh, what do we, here's the numbers. Is it less than 5% of Muslims support five, uh, 9-11? Between 5 and 10%? 10 to 25%? Or more than 25%? Who thinks it's less than 5%? Good, thank you. Between 5 and 10%? 10 to 25%? Nobody. The answer, and you guys are pretty good, is 7% globally support 9-11. Most people are surprised by that number being as small as it is. And what is especially interesting was that Dahlia found, and the book actually is on the book table at the back, Who Speaks for Islam. So if you want to read more about this global research on Muslim attitudes, it's on the book table. Dahlia found that the the guys who are fundamentalist, who are a terrorist, are not religious. That the Muslims, the guys who did the 9-11 attack the night before got drunk and got some prostitutes in. These are not the people who are praying five times a day and fasting and memorizing the Quran. These are people who are politically angry and alienated and um, feel a deep hostility against Western dominance in the world. It's the angry young man syndrome. It's not the devout Muslim syndrome. We need to understand. We need to understand. We need to learn. I was in Kyrgyzstan in September, Bishkek airport, waiting for my flight home. And there's three guys around me speaking Arabic. And I find that one is a Saudi Muslim missionary to Kyrgyzstan, so I'm missionary, he's a missionary. Good, we can talk. <laughs> and the two others are Kyrgyz lads who are in Saudi getting training at the big mosque in Medina, training to be Muslim missionaries. And because they're Kyrgyz, they speak Turkish like me, so I can speak to them. So we have this fascinating conversation. And I say to the Saudi guy, wow, you're Saudi, you speak Arabic. Could you please teach me the Fatiha? Fatiha is the first chapter of the Quran. So for this Saudi guy, Muslim missionary, here's an Englishman asking him to teach him the Quran. You know, it's Christmas, doubled. (laughs) This is fantastic for him. He lights up like a Christmas tree. (laughs) Bismillah al-Rahman al-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, Rab al-Alamin. Al-Rahim al-Rahman. Al-Rahman (laughs) al-Rahim. Ihtida. Musurat al-Mustaqim. In the name of the merciful, the compassionate, praise to God, the Lord of all worlds. It's just great, you know. So what I'm showing respect, I'm learning. I'm building relationship. What does the Fatiha say? It says, as I've said, in the name of the merciful, the compassionate, praise to God, the Lord of all worlds, show us the true path. Show us the straight path. Almost like a psalm. 
nothing in it which compromises my conscience. And having built the bridge, they say, you know, it's a shame you guys think Jesus didn't die on the cross. And I would say, well, that's interesting you say that. You know, the Bible says that Jesus' mother was there at the foot of the cross. Do you think mum mistook who was on the cross? And anyway, your Quran, even the Quran says, doesn't say Jesus didn't die. The Quran, when you read it carefully, says the Jews didn't crucify him. And they listened. It wasn't an argument. It was a discussion. Why was it a discussion and not an argument? Because I'd started by saying, you teach me. I want to learn because I respect you. Very important word, respect. Especially for Asian, non-Western cultures. Honor, respect are very important values. So we in OM, when we put together our mission statement, Muslim peoples, we got about a thousand OMers reaching Muslims. Love your Muslim neighbor. What does that mean? That means respect, befriend, build relationship, serve, find the felt needs. How can we help you? What issues have you got that we can do something about? Openly sharing our lives and values. Love, means respect, love means befriend, relationship, love means serve. But love also means share what you've got. It doesn't mean hide that, it doesn't mean sweep that under the carpet, it doesn't mean fudge that, it means face that because I love you. So we've talked about Muslims as people, we've talked about Muslims as a culture, now I want to go on and talk about Muslims as Islam, as a religion. La ilah illallah wa Muhammad Rasulullah, the shahada, the creed. This is what you need to recite if you want to become a Muslim. You recite that and you become a Muslim. And it's got two clauses, la ilah illallah, there is no God but God. Where Muhammad, Rasulullah, and Muhammad is the prophet of God. Right there, you've got two statements. The first, there is no God but God. God is one. And what's our response to that? Amen. <laughs> what did Moses say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And Jesus picked it up and said, absolutely, there is one God, we are monotheists, there is one creator, there is one judge, every one of us at the end of our lives are going to face him and are going to give an account for what we've done with our time on earth. Muslims say that, we say that, absolutely, and from that point of view, we've got more in common with Muslims than we do with people in the street. Because they've got a God-centered view of the world. They have a spiritual view of the world. They believe in God. They believe in prayer. They believe God heals. They believe God drives out demons. I tell you folks, one of the easiest things 
I find in my relationships with Muslims is to say to them, can I pray for you? You know, if I meet a Muslim and they tell me they're sick, I always say, would you mind if I prayed? You know from the Quran that Jesus is a prophet who healed people. So I would like to pray to Jesus right now for him to heal you. And in, what, 20, 30, 30 years of ministry among Muslims, I've never had a Muslim say to me, no thanks. As they know Jesus is a prophet. They know God is real. They know they expect God to heal. They ex- lots of them expect more from God than the average Christian does. These are religious, God-centered, God-fearing people. You know, back a few years back when there was a thing about Clause 28 and whether homosexuality should be taught in schools or not as a, as a viable lifestyle, it was the Muslims who joined up with the Christians to resist that. Because they, like us, believe in absolutes. Believe in family. Want to protect their kids from what's going on in our society. No God but God. Even the word Allah, you know? Some Christians think, ooh, can I use that word? Isn't that a false God? Actually, Allah is the same word as the Hebrew, Elohim, in the Old Testament. Elohim is the word for God in the Old Testament. Elohim, L-H, is the old Semitic root for God. It's just the Semitic word for God. It's just like our word for God. You know, before, you, before we became Christian in this country, God was a sort of Teutonic idol or something, and you covered yourself in blue and worshipped it. And then we learned that God is not an idol. God is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I'm talking with Muslims, my mindset is much more that these are like Jews who know about God but have a false idea of God and need to have their idea about God corrected. It's not that they're worshiping the wrong God, but they're worshiping the right God in the wrong way. So I feel quite comfortable to use Allah, Allah. Allah, Allah, Allah. No God but God. And we've got a lot in common there. Wa Muhammad, Rasulullah. And Muhammad is the prophet of God. And of course, that's the point where we have to start to discuss. <laughs> and if I love, I need to discuss. It's not love to hide. Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. Muhammad is a prophet, right? Muslims believe in prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Dear brothers and sisters, Muslim brothers and sisters, we need to tell you about Jesus. 
We appreciate your culture. We love you as people. We've got a lot in common, but you know there's something we need to talk about, and that is Jesus. That Jesus is completely and utterly different. Jesus is the very representation. He's the radiance of God's glory. God manifest on earth. God's word, the communication of the essence of who God is. You want to know about God's love? Where do you look? You look in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have to say with humility to my Muslim brothers and sisters, I don't see God's love in Muhammad's face. I'm not here to diss Muhammad. I don't really want to get into that. But I do want to talk about how wonderful Jesus is. I do want to talk about the power of Jesus, the miracles Jesus did. You see, Muhammad didn't do miracles. You want to know about God's creative power? Look at Jesus in a boat on a lake in a storm. And the disciples, terrified, thought they were going down. Said to Jesus, don't you care? He gets up and with a word, with two words, be still. And it's a mill pond. And they were amazed and wondered who this man was. Jesus in his being, in his person, is the manifestation, the embodiment of all that God is. Even the Quran says Jesus is the word of God. You can't know God without knowing Jesus. God didn't send a book. He sent a man. And the man wrote the book. But to demonstrate who he was, to let us know the way, Jesus, the word became flesh. The person of Jesus is utterly unique. And to be honest, there's no comparison. And secondly, what Jesus did, he made purification for sins. Became the sacrifice, became the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only he could be a sacrifice. Only he was perfect. You know, the Quran, in the Quran, there are several places where Muhammad prays for forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? Muhammad himself prays, forgive me. You look through all of history. Was there anyone else who could say, show me my sin? Was there anyone else who was born of a virgin? Was there anyone else whose death was a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world? No. All Islam can offer is the hope that if I do enough good, if I pray enough, if I give enough, then maybe I could possibly be accepted. Only Jesus can give the assurance and the confidence that I'm a child of God. My sins are washed away. I'm accepted. My name is written in heaven. 
I am loved. I have eternal significance in God. This idea that all religions are the same is junk. Sure, all religions talk about God, but their view of God, well, Way back when we were in Ankara, I had an Iranian friend, Muhammad, great name. And he started to wonder as we talked to him about Jesus. And he, one day he went back to his hotel room and said, God, please show me the truth. And he took a Quran and he took a New Testament. And he opened both at random and read. And the page of the Quran that he read was about threats of hellfire and judgment and damnation. And the page of the New Testament that he read was about God's love. Now, hell is a reality, but it is not the central thrust and focus of the Christian gospel. It's love. Why? Because God is love. And he showed us his love in that while we were still against him, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. That's the God we learn about in Jesus. It's quite different. It's a glorious privilege to be, have been given this message. So, what are we going to do with it? I want to say, love your Muslim neighbor. That means love them as people. That means learn and respect their cultures. That means share the truth that we have that has been entrusted to us. Not because we were clever, not because we were smart, not because we were good. I don't know why. But God chose to show me and that gives me an awesome responsibility. What Muslims do you know? How are you sharing with them? How are you loving them? And what about the 1.5 billion around the world? There's some stuff at the back on our bookstore that will help you. Uh, we've got a thing about OM's ministry among Muslims. I've got a booklet about Iran, a prayer booklet for Iran that I would love for everyone to get a copy of at the back at the end of the meeting. I've also got a book by my wife. I should have mentioned this earlier. <laughs> About our time in Turkey, you will see hoopoos. This usually sells for six pounds, but my wife instructed us strictly this morning. We were only to sell it at the cost price, so you can get it for three quid at the back. Special deal, just for destiny. Love Muslims. But have you yourself understood what this is about? You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
No one else ever said anything like that. I, I am the way. You see, Muhammad said, this is the way. If you pray five times a day, if you keep the fast, if you dress in certain clothes, if you eat certain foods, that's the way. Jesus said, I, come to me. I am the truth. Not this is truth, not believe these doctrines, but just believe in me. And I am the life because I died and rose again. No one comes to the Father but through me. Islam doesn't know anything about God as Father. The only way you can know God as Father is through His Son. There is no other. No one comes to the Father but through me. Amen. Lord, we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is so wonderful, so unique, so glorious, so marvelous. We love him, and we want to proclaim him. We want to tell others about him, and we pray that Muslims will know about Jesus. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on this whole earth, that there would be a great movement of Muslims getting a revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that you would bring millions and millions and millions of Muslims to faith in yourself, that you would use us, that you would use destiny to work out your purpose, that Jesus cannot come back until there are millions and millions of Muslims worshiping him, ready for heaven, because they realized that it's not by law, it's by grace. That there's one way, and that way is Jesus. Help us, Lord, to live that out, to share that message, to love in his name, for his glory's sake. Amen. Now that's your appreciation for Julian. <laughs> Let's hear it for Julian again. Thank you. When witnessing to Muslims, how do you get round to the issue that the Quran is the no, very word of God? How do you get round the issue, not round to the issue? That's the question. How do you get round the issue? That the Quran is the very word of God. Well, actually, um, something that I've been learning more and more in the last three years is that there is a lot of stuff in the Quran which is really helpful. There are Muslims coming to faith in Jesus through the Quran. Okay, we're taking it more technically here. Third surah of the Quran is called Al-Imran, verses 42 to 55. So I'll say that again. The third surah, the Quran is 114 chapters. They're called surahs. The third one is called Al-Imran. Muslims usually know the chapters of the Quran by a name. So Al-Imran is the third. 42 to 55 is the description of Jesus. And it's extraordinary because it talks about uh, the virgin birth, it talks about the miracles that he did. It talks about, it describes him as word of God, which goes straight to John 1.1. And it's a great launch pad, actually. I mean, just two months ago, I heard of a lady in Malaysia who read that 
with her Christian friend about five times. At the end of it, the Christian friend said to this Malaysian Malay lady, so who do you think Jesus is? And she said, well, he's more than a prophet. And then these words came out of her mouth and she was shocked. He's God. And all they had done up to that point was read the Quran. Now at that point, of course, our colleague switched the study to the Bible. And they got, you know, and that lady has now gone on and actually has led 20 other people to faith. And there's a church, there's a house church in her village. But it started with the Quran. Very interesting. Also, lots of Muslims will tell you that the Quran says the Bible is changed. Challenge them to actually look at the Quran because it doesn't say the Bible has been changed. Actually, what it says is that the Jews twisted it in their interpretation. It doesn't say they changed the text. And I referred in my message to another common Muslim idea is that the Quran says Jesus was not crucified in Surah 4, verse 171, it doesn't. It says the Jews did not crucify him. Yeah, that's right. Actually, they didn't. The Romans did, and actually it wasn't even the Romans because John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life, but I, I freely give it. So there's a, actually, embrace the Quran, look at it and use it as a bridge. Last Sunday we were looking at Acts 17 where Paul quotes there you go. two Greek poets. Yep. He says, for in him we live, move and have our being, which was Epimenides. Yeah. And then, as your own poets have said, we are also his offspring, Aridus. Well done. Now, Epimenides was singing a song to Zeus. Yeah. That was, in him we live, move and have our was being, it was a song to Zeus. So Paul was saying, correct thought, but wrong God. Yeah. <laughs> So now, the, obviously, we wouldn't say the Quran is the word of God, but what you're saying is it's helpful as a starting point. Would, you, is that, would, would that be right? Absolutely. I'm saying, you know, there's this theological concept of common grace, yeah. which is where God's goodness is, is working out in all the universe, not just in the church and in salvation in Jesus. That's special grace, but there's common grace. And he's allowed these signs these truths to be embedded in other people's thought systems. And on top of that, what I said about the Samaritans, you know, love your neighbor was about in the context of the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a Jewish heresy. That means they were talking about the God of Moses, but they got that mixed up. But there was a core there which was on target. That's how I see Islam. I see it as a Jewish heresy. So that they, they, they started with some stuff that Muhammad got from the Old Testament and then he got it mixed up. But because of that root in the Old Testament, there's these elements of truth which God has, has allowed to remain there. And, and a lot of the commentators are reacting against Christianity put more and more of an anti-Christian spin in their interpretation of the Quran. But when you take them back to the Quran and say, well, look, what did Muhammad actually say? It's more positive than they expect. Now, it's certainly not the word of God, and there's lots of rubbish in there, but there's enough good stuff. If someone is searching, like this lady in Malaysia, 
it will take them further. If they're not searching, you know, they'll find lots of reasons not to take it any further. But this is a, an, an easy way to share a bit of gospel truth with somebody, to throw the bait out, and then if God is working in their life, they'll come back and say, can we talk about that a bit more? And of course, that's the point where you say, well, let's look at the New Testament. But the starting point is something that they're very familiar with, which well, is great. And of course, and, and that's basic communication as you start, with, like Paul did in Athens, mm. start with what they're familiar with and build from that. Very good. Okay, question number two. Is the creator God of Moses the same as the God of Muhammad? <laughs> Here we are. This is this issue of, and I, I think I've answered it a bit tonight, and I've just answered it a bit there, that Muhammad, in his religious search, had been talking to Christians and to Jews. He was uh, a caravan, he was taking trading caravans from Mecca up to Palestine and Syria. And he was talking to rabbis and Christian communities on the way. So he was collecting ideas from Jews and from Christians. And then he had his own revelation and started to produce the Quran. So the roots of it are there in the Old Testament. And that's why I see it as a Jewish heresy. So I do think we can say it's, it's the same God, just like if I'm talking to a Jew or to a JW, perhaps that's a better analogy. I'm talking to a JW, I, I'm, you know. We're not talking about Johnny Wilson here. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's for Witnesses. those who don't know what a JW is. Yeah, a Jehovah's Witness is someone who's coming out of the Christian tradition but has got it mixed up and twisted. It's a heresy. But the root is in the Christian tradition. So I can talk to a Jehovah's Witness about God, and we're talking about the same God, but the issue is his understanding of God is mangled and needs to be sorted. And that's how I feel very much with a a Muslim. No Muslim convert I know has ever said, I was worshipping the wrong God and now I've switched to the right God. They've all said... I was worshipping God in ignorance. I didn't know about his love. I didn't know that he had sent Jesus. And now I understand he's my father. And I love him much more than I did before. Whereas, when I was in India, I met Hindu converts who all said, I was worshipping Krishna and I stopped worshipping Krishna. I threw out my idol of Krishna. I burnt my pictures of Ram. I repented of my idolatry and I turned to worship the true God. So even in the, the testimonies of people who've come to faith out of these backgrounds, you see the difference between a Hindu and a Muslim. And I know that a lot of evangelical Christians are very strong on this, and they say, no, the Muslim God is not the same as yeah. the Christian God. And, and, and they'll say things like, the Christian God is a son, the Muslim God does not have a son, and, and so on. How would you answer that? Um, God is God and God has a son, and the Muslim friends need to know that the one God who is creator, who is judge, did send his son. Okay, next question. When a Muslim becomes a Christian, what tends to happen next? Do they, uh, do they still call themselves Muslims? Whoa, this is the hot missiological issue of the hour. So the person who asked this is very up-to-date on current 
now, controversy. I, I, last week as well, I read a statistic that there are 15 million Christians, and sorry, Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists who have opted to stay within their religious systems to be witnesses for Christ right. globally. Yeah. That was a st- statistic that I quoted last, last week. First thing, what does Muslim mean? Uh, grammatically, the Arabic word Muslim means one who has submitted. It's an act of submission to God. So, from that point of view, I can call myself a Muslim. Moreover, another, I mean, actually, in this passage I just mentioned, Surah 3, 42 to 55, the disciples of Jesus are called Muslims because they were people who submitted themselves to God's truth that they had learned through Jesus. So that starts to give a bit of space. Secondly, when in the past we insisted a new convert call themselves Christian from day one, what happened was that their family was offended. They felt their child was betraying the family identity and that person was kicked out of the family and kicked out of the community. That did two things. First thing it did was it stopped the possibility of their witness back into their family. And the second thing it did was it often destroyed people psychologically because these are people from relational, family-centered cultures for whom survival, psychological survival outside their family is almost impossible. You know, I am my family. So if I lose my family, I lose myself. And, and, you know, you get people with psychological problems because of that. In Mission to Muslims, we're, we're learning at least to let people continue to call themselves Muslims until they get to the point where they start to question that. And when you say call themselves Muslim, it's more as a as their culture rather than as their theology. Thank you, Peter. Because for a lot of people, for instance, the church in Bangladesh, the new church in Bangladesh, in the last 20 years has been, I mean, between 40 and 100,000 Bangladeshis have come to faith in Jesus. And one of the reasons for that was that there was a new translation which used the kind of language that Muslims use. And the other reason was they realized just what you're saying, that... In Bangladesh, Christian means some of the folks who came out of a Hindu background, eat pork, drink alcohol. And so if you say, I'm a Christian, it means I've become a pork eater and a wine drinker. That's really what it means, that I've and left my community. Thing, yeah. Sorry? And that's a bad thing. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I'm... <laughs> Yeah, we don't feel the revulsion that a Muslim feels. I mean, it's like, you know, I start to eat monkey brains. It's, it's pork. And so if one of these folks in Bangladesh goes back to his family and says, I'm a Christian, it means, oh, you've joined these wine drinkers, you've joined these pork eaters, you are no longer faithful to your community. Because it's, it's, it's a community thing. So what these folks in Bangladesh are doing is saying, I'm a Muslim who believes in Jesus. They'd like to put a little qualifier in there. I'm a Muslim who believes in Jesus. Now, it varies from situation to situation, and I don't want to say it's always going to be like this, or it should, but at least in the transition period, 
to give people space so that they can stay inside their community instead of being expelled from it and work out how they're going to express their Christian faith. Now, you know, after they've been around a bit, and especially when the community grows and gets more self-confidence, I think we could find some of these communities saying, well, actually, we're Christians. In fact, the Muslims might say, well, hey, you know, you're worshipping Jesus, you're Christians. But let's give them time to grow in strength, to grow in numbers, so that when that persecution and rejection hits, they've got the strength to survive it. And it's really important that we understand this. If you counsel somebody from day one to say, I'm a Christian, you're going to set him up for persecution when he's a brand new believer that he can't handle. And you'll lose him. I think there's a difference as well. If, if someone's standing up for Jesus and being persecuted, that's a very different thing to saying, I'm a Christian and being persecuted. That's right, isn't it? Because if you've been persecuted because you've adhered to Jesus, that's to do with God and the clash between light and darkness. Yeah. But when you're standing up and saying, I'm a Christian, that might not be the clash between light and darkness. That's just cultural. Yeah. And, and that's a culture clash. I mean, in Turkish, Christian, the Turkish word for Christian is really you know, a bad word because it means enemy. Right through Turkish history, the enemy has been the Greeks and the Russians and the Armenians and the surrounding Christians. So when you say, I'm Christian, it means you're the enemy. So if a Turk you know, says, I've become a Christian, it means he's switched sides. So the rejection is because you're disloyal to your community, not because of, necessarily because of Jesus. Because if you can stay in the community and keep the relationships then later on, let the offense be the offense of the cross. Okay, next question. Do you think there's a spiritual connection between Abraham's lack of faith in God's promise of a son, Isaac, by having Ishmael first and the two religions, uh, two religions we now see, Islam and Christianity? Yeah, woo. <laughs> this is a whole message. <laughs> Could you start by telling us what the Muslims take on that story is? Yeah, I was going to start with that, actually. I, I, was, I, was, I was going to tell you the story of once I was on a flight from Jordan back to Turkey, and all these people were dressed in white. They'd been to Mecca, and they had bottles of water. So I was next to this guy, and I said, what's this water? He said, ah, my son, this is Zamzam water. And Zamzam is a well in Mecca that Muslims say is the well God gave Hagar when, you remember... Sarah drove Hagar out, Hagar and Ishmael out. They were in the desert, going to die. Ishmael is crying, Hagar prays, and God gives a well. And Muslims say that's in Mecca. Now, the Old Testament makes quite clear it's in the Negev, in the south of Israel. But Muslims do heavily identify with Ishmael and Abraham. I mean, Muslims say that the Kaaba, the big black, stone in Mecca where they do the pilgrimage was built by Abraham and even the Bible says that Ishmael is the father of the Arabs so there's this strong identification with Ishmael another thing that Muslims do for instance is the story of Abraham taking his son up the mountain to sacrifice him, Genesis 22 the scripture says that was Isaac, the father of the Jews the, through which God's promise was worked out Muslims say it was Ishmael. 
So right through, you see, there's the Zamzam water, there's the Kaaba, there's Ishmael. So there's this strong identification with Ishmael, the father of the Arabs, being God's chosen. So that's the, 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 the background to this issue. And I, I think there's a tremendous amount in the Genesis narrative about Hagar and about Ishmael that we can mine for an understanding of Islam. That it was Abraham's lack of faith which led to poor Hagar, really an innocent victim, being driven out. And then her son is, is a wild donkey, Genesis 16. You know, he's condemned to be a donkey who's going to be a, a fighter. Whose fault was it? It was Abraham's fault. Abraham failed to be the man of God and the father that he should be. And this boy grows up and you don't need to be a great psychologist to know what kind of kid this is. You know, his, his father has let him down. And then later on, his father drives him out. So Durr, he's, you know, he's, he's a hoodlum. He's, he's aggressive. He's, he's an angry young man. And it's because of the failure of the people of God. Islam, in a sense, can be seen as the result of the failure of the people of God. Because... When Muhammad was started his search, there was no scripture in Arabic. The Christians he met were mixed up and gave him a very twisted idea of the gospel. And if the church had translated the Bible into Arabic, if the church had taken the initiative to reach the Arabs, we wouldn't have Muhammad. So when the people of God fail to be the people of God, then things go wrong. And yet in that, and this is something that is quite precious to me in Muslim mission, when God promises Isaac to Abraham in Genesis 17, Abraham comes back and says, that's great God, but please let Ishmael live under your blessing. He still has a heart for Ishmael and he prays, let Ishmael live. And then you take those words and put them into a New Testament context. Let Ishmael live under your blessing. And then you fast forward to Romans 11, where it says the promises of God are irrevocable. For the, and for the sake of the patriarchs, even though Israel is stubborn and against, hostile to the gospel, for the sake of your promise to Abraham, Isaac, Israel, will be added to the people of God. Romans doesn't say this, but it's something I feel I can say with some confidence. By the same token, God will answer the prayer of Abraham for Ishmael. That in Genesis 17, Abraham prayed that Ishmael might live under your blessing. Uh, I believe that's what's happening, starting to happen in our time. That God will answer Abraham's prayer for Isaac. And, and Gen Romans 11 says the Jews will come back. One of the signs of the end will be the conversion of, of Israel. And in the same way, I think Abraham's other son, Ishmael, will be put, drawn back and find life and true blessing 
in being grafted back into the true family. So you get the picture then, the sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael and us, the adopted children of Abraham, will be reconciled and united in the ultimate family of God. Question I have in line with this. Uh-huh. The Koran was written 600 years after Christ? Correct. It, it seems complete lack of credibility to come up with a butchered version of an ancient text which described the history written by Moses in Genesis, yeah. which has been around for centuries leading yeah. up to that, and then yeah. centuries later, they come up with a new rendition that's completely different. It doesn't seem like it has any scholarly integrity at all. And is, what, is, there, is there, you know, for, for us, we can, we can argue a case for why we believe the eyewitnesses of the Gospels of Jesus' life were accurate. How can they argue and hold to, with passion to text that is, hasn't got the integrity? 600 years after. And that's a big problem for them. Is it just blind acceptance? I mean, their view is the Quran was sent down from heaven, that the Quran that we have on earth is a copy of the tablet in heaven, that the Quran has been God's eternal word sent down. And so, because of this problem, these problems of the contradictions between the Quran and the Gospels and the Quran and, and the Torah, the Old Testament. That's why they have to start to say it's been ch- the, the Gospel and the Old Testament have been changed to defend themselves. Even though the Quran itself does not actually say that. But later in commentators, when they realized how much of a contradiction there was and issues like that, you know, Moses was much nearer to Abraham than Muhammad was. And Moses probably had documents left over by Abraham that he was referring to when he wrote Genesis. And the apostles, when they wrote the Gospels, you know, that was just a few decades after Jesus, and they were as a group of eyewitnesses corroborating what was written. That this is, and there's all these manuscripts that we have all around the world showing that the text has not been changed. You know, that's a big problem. And their only refuge is to say it's been changed. And there's no evidence for it, you know, well, who, when, how, and there's no answers. Okay, next question. How do you affirm your faith through scripture to a Muslim who believes the Bible has been corrupted? (laughs) How we go. Um, do, Do we convince them that Jesus is the son of God and not just a prophet? We've just been saying, in defense of the text of the Bible. You know, there are manuscripts in the British Museum, in the Ryland Library, in the Vatican, all over the world. So that there's, we've got archeological evidence. Massive numbers of, of manuscripts, far more manuscripts of the scripture than of any other ancient text. But when you talk to a Middle Easterner, a Muslim, that doesn't work because his mind isn't, Western modernist. modernist. So he's not impressed by this kind of scientific evidence. What I personally have found more effective is this. What? Do you think God is so weak and so pathetic that he can't defend his own book? Oh, you've got a terrible view of God. God is almighty. God is all powerful. God is more than able to defend his book. And to think that God cannot protect his book is blasphemy. Shame on you for 
insulting God and saying that he's so pathetic that he would let men, mere men, change his holy text. And that kind of approach has another advantage because it demonstrates to my Muslim friend that I am passionate about God. It's good for them to see some passion. Uh, They think Christians are are lukewarm, uh, degenerate, they're all immoral. And so to see... You know, God's honor is important to me. Actually, oh, right, this guy's serious. They like that. So that's the first one. How do we convince them that Jesus is the Son of God and not just a prophet? Well, first thing is to say, when the Quran time and time again says Jesus is not the Son, it says that because it thinks the Son is in a literal sense that God had sex with Mary and the product was Jesus. That's what Muslims think we mean when we say son of God. So, so they would get this from Catholic, Catholic belief when they talk about Mary, the mother of God. And yeah, I think... Would that be, their reaction would be against that? Yeah, I, I think some of these weird uh, Christian semi-Orthodox groups in the desert in Arabia probably were influenced by Catholicism and Gnosticism and were elevating Mary. And so Muhammad was with these people and listening to these people, so he got the idea that Mary... I mean, actually, the Quran says the Trinity is father, mother, son. So the first thing to say is, look, my friend, there is no way that any Christian has ever thought that God had sex with Mary and produced Jesus. Actually, what the Quran says is what we believe. It was a miracle, a miracle of God that through God's power, Mary became pregnant and Jesus was her child. So we're not talking physically, we're talking spiritually, we're talking metaphorically. So that's the first point to make. Second point to make is the deity of Jesus, a helpful way to try and explain it to a Muslim is to use the concept of word of God. Because the Quran calls Jesus the word of God in about three places in this 3, 42 to 55 and in other places it calls Jesus word of God. So let's think about that. It doesn't say that about Muhammad. It only says it about Jesus. And of course it ties right into John 1 verse 1. So that's a a great opportunity. It's another of these little nuggets God has allowed to be there in the Quran to help us to have something in common. So word of God, what's... Julian's words. If you want to know Julian, the only way you can know Julian is through his words. Julian's words are part of him, are an expression of his thought, are a communication of his feelings, are an intrinsic part of who Julian is. That's the word of Julian. In the same way, the word of God is... God, in some sense, divine. So that's uh, to help people understand how it is that we can say this Jesus can be divine and what we mean by Son of God. Very good. Okay, next question. How common is it for a Muslim converting to Christianity to see oh. a vision or a dream of Jesus? All the time. Yeah. I mean, this is... 
one of the exciting things, one of the senior missionary statesmen in Turkey did a survey of Turkish converts and found about 50% had had a dream. Either at the beginning of their pilgrimage to get their attention or after they'd gone so far to help them go over the line. And there are endless stories of Muslims who've had dreams of Jesus. I think it's happening more. I mean, I think as around the world, there's more prayer for the Muslim world. One of the things that's happening is God is giving more dreams and visions to Muslims. To the extent that one veteran American missionary I was talking to said that some of these folks now, when they're with a group of Muslims, don't wait for them to say, I've had a dream. This guy says, has anyone here had a dream of somebody in white? <laughs> with a you know, shining face. Yeah, I have. Do you know what that means? No? Well, let me show you. I mean, it's becoming so common in some places that you can take the initiative and say, a friend of ours in Tajikistan went to visit a friend and the daughter said, it's great you're here. I had a dream of Jesus last night. <laughs> How did you know it was Jesus? And the daughter said, oh, it was so beautiful. And we were sitting at his feet and he was teaching us. And of course that led to a, a lovely evening of talking about why is Jesus beautiful and what does he teach us? And the next morning they got up for breakfast and the friend said to our worker, I've been thinking, you know, why was it my daughter had that dream the night before last? Because we didn't know you were coming. And in fact, you didn't know you were coming. But Jesus knew you were coming. And because you were coming, he gave that dream. I thought that was cool. That's really cool because the point is, there has to be someone to explain the dream. See, the dream in itself is not enough. There has to be someone to interpret the dream, and that's our job. And then when I'm speaking to groups like this, I like to say, what if there was no one able to explain the dream? Would Jesus have given it? He's able to give it. But if there isn't a messenger, could he? Would he? Is he waiting for someone to go so that he can give the dream? Another one along the same lines was in, in Lebanon, you know, after the last war with Israel. And there's a lot of bombing in the south and a lot of Shiites from the south of Lebanon came up to Beirut and the church in Beirut really did well by opening their homes and institutions and helping these refugees. They were, our people were giving out water. And um, with the water, those who wanted, they gave them a New Testament. So this lady, all covered up from the south of Lebanon, just being bombed out of her house by Israel, when they offer her the New Testament, she says, oh great, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> so half the worker said, what? <laughs> you know, covered. Oh, what do you mean you believe in Jesus? Oh, I had a dream of Jesus. He was beautiful. He was so beautiful. He was so very beautiful. She said it three times. And that actually is something I've been thinking about. 
when God reveals Jesus to Muslims, he reveals the beauty. It's very powerful. Very powerful, isn't it? <laughs> In Acts chapter 10, yeah. uh, the angel appears to Cornelius and says, send to Joppa to get Peter. Uh-huh. And then in Acts 11 it says, and he will come and tell you words by which you and your household can be saved. Yeah. My question when I read that is always, well, why did the angel not just skip, skip the middleman? Angel, uh-huh. just tell him the gospel yeah. yourself. Yeah. But it was the privilege of human beings yeah. to carry this message we call the gospel. Right. Angels can't do it. Angels can't. Not even angels have that privilege. Yeah. So um, the challenge for some of us here and some of us listening to the MP3 is we've got to be missionaries. And... Um, We've got, a, we've got a huge opportunity on our doorstep here with the, with the world coming here, uh, with mass immigration, with Muslims being on our doorstep, and us having the opportunity in a hostile culture of showing hospitality that they haven't experienced, and then also us being missionaries with organizations like OM and other organizations going to other parts of the world to share our faith uh, on, the back, on the background of, of love angels and demonstration. Haven't, angels haven't been saved. They don't know the gospel. They can't understand experientially forgiveness, can they? No. There's no redemption for a fallen angel. No. But there's redemption for fallen humanity. <laughs> and when Peter went, it was very scary for him. As a good Jew, he'd never been into a Gentile home. Hmm. And these people ate pork. Hmm. These people drank wine. They worshipped idols. Yeah. He knew he was going to be criticized for visiting that home. And he was. Hmm. It was scary. So we must do the same. Okay, next question. As a Christian, who do you think Muhammad was and is there any truth in his message? Yeah, we've scudded around this. You made a point last time you were here. Now, Julian spoke a number of years ago in Edinburgh and his, his previous message entitled How to Love My Muslim Neighbor is available for downloads. This is part two, How to Love My Muslim Labor. And he touched on some similar aspects, but he did answer a few other questions uh, in that previous talk that he didn't talk about tonight, and he covered things tonight that he didn't touch on the first time. So if you, want, you might want to download that first MP3. But you, you touched on um, another question which is linked to this, and the question is, what's the difference between a Christian fundamentalist and a Muslim fundamentalist? So that's another thing I want to throw to you as well, just in line with this. I think Muhammad, to begin with, might have been a genuine seeker after truth. But I have to say that he started to receive the Quran in response to a spiritual experience which he interpreted as an angel, Angel Gabriel. And the Bible teaches us to test truth by what the messages about Jesus in 1 John you test the spirits by asking what the spirits say about is he God come in flesh the Quran does not give Jesus full honor so ultimately it's I mean it is a deception and in his early years in Mecca Muhammad's message was more positive it was more repent of the idols and addressing social abuses and he was friendlier towards Christians. When some of his earlier followers were persecuted in Mecca, he sent them to the Christian king of Ethiopia. Passages in the Quran from the Mecca time are more positive about Christians. 
When he went to Medina, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He went to Medina and he became ruler. He had power. And that's when it starts to get a bit ugly. When the Jews in Medina didn't accept him, he killed some of them. He silenced any opposition violently. And the verses in that, those sections of the Quran which he spoke out when he was in Medina are more negative about Jews and Christians and are more violent. There's a, there's a pattern as you work through the chronological progression of the Quran, the understanding of something like jihad gets more and more violent. In the earlier chapters, jihad is a moral struggle against evil. In the later chapters, it's cut the heads off. So there's a picture of a man who's becoming more authoritarian, more violent in suppressing opposition. And of course, his relationships with women really deteriorate. And he starts to accumulate wives, some of whom are very young. And that's, I think, the background to my comment about a fundamentalist. A Christian fundamentalist becomes more and more like Jesus. Whereas a Muslim fundamentalist becomes more and more like Muhammad. And we've got a lot of a problem that a lot of Christians are not really living the Jesus way, but the more fanatical we get about Jesus, the more we're going to love our enemies. So when people, for example, would say, well, what's the difference between a Christian and a Muslim? Look, there's fundamentalism in, yeah. uh, in Saudi Arabia, and look, there's fundamentalism yeah. in Ireland. Yeah. The reality is the, the so-called fundamentalist in Ireland has no allegiance to this Jesus yeah. and doesn't represent the life of Jesus. In fact, this fundamentalist word is, is an unfortunate word now because the press like to accuse us of being fundamentalist. You know, because of bin Laden, fundamentalist now means terrorist. And we are similarly convinced about the literal truth of our scripture. So we are fundamentalist. And that carries the association of bigot, prejudiced, violent... And so I prefer uh, to use the word Islamist for the radical Muslims and try and avoid the word fundamentalist. But the point is, you go back for the heart of a religion or you go back to the source, you go back to the founder. So while there's ugly things in Christian history, there's ugly things in Muslim history, Christians have used violence, Muslims have used violence. We've had crusades, which are the equivalent of jihad. Go back to the source and compare the lives of the founders. And actually, you can't compare them. That's why the great thing to do with a Muslim is just to get them to read the life of Jesus. Get them to watch a movie like the Jesus film. Get them to read the New Testament and just to get their head into who Jesus was. The, the important message is, you see, we, we obviously would disagree on, on terms of truth. We would disagree. But what you said earlier is respect, admiration, and love. So no matter what the disagreement is, the disagreement yeah. can exist, but there is respect nevertheless, and there is love. 
And that's the difference between what I, I think I feel a fundamentalist is in the negative sense and where we're at. In a Christian sense, fundamentalist. In a Christian, Christian. sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, well, in any, I think fundamentalist is someone who does not relate, who just cuts off. Black and white, bigoted. Black and white, bigoted, yeah. not yeah. listening. Yeah. Doesn't engage. Yeah. Whereas we need to be people who can engage, who can listen, mm. and having listened, then has a bridge over which he can communicate. I had another great time on a bus in Turkey last year. Chap sat down next to me. I was reading my Bible. He had enough English to say, is that a Bible you're reading? And it turned out that he was a sales manager of a factory making headlights for Ford. So he's, you know, significant, educated, together person. We had a great conversation. And I was reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where Paul says they turn from idols to serve the living God. And that was a great verse for a Muslim turning from idols to serve the living God. So we, we started, and he started to talk about his own faith. He talked about how that was important to him. He talked about how you needed to make choices to put God first in your life. He talked about how his desire was to serve God and to honor God in his life. And I was able to say the same thing. And, and it was respect. And I listened to him and I acknowledged what he was saying and I affirmed him. And we had a lovely half hour telling our stories and how we felt about our faiths and God. And then it was great because then he started to pull out some of the old chestnuts. You know, it, you know it's wonderful to meet you and I appreciate your love for God, but it is a shame, isn't it, that your book has been changed? <laughs> kind of stuff. <laughs> and I, I said, well, well, actually, you know, my friend, and I gave some of the reasons I've been giving here why I didn't believe my book has been changed. And he said, oh, I see. Well, what about this son of God thing? How can you guys, if you really believe God is God, how can you think God would have a a son? Well, we don't think that. We never thought that. That's a horrendous thought for us. And what we mean by son of God is this, oh, thank you for sharing that with me. I'd never heard that before. And he wrote me an email afterwards saying, you know, that was really good. And I've learned stuff from you that I'd never heard before. And I really, you know, he was accepting what I was telling him. Because I had given him respect and affirmation. And that had developed a friendship over which I was able to then communicate truth and that he was able to listen to. Because we weren't in argument mode or when I'm saying something, what his head is doing is planning how he's going to answer me. But he was actually listening. listening. Yeah. That was a, for me last year, that was a very important experience that taught me about this. Well, one more question because time is a ticking. Okay, how does OM support women who turned to Christianity in the light of honor killings? Oof. We'll end with a light one. <laughs> Honor killings means that the lady's going to be killed for her conversion, I guess. Well, I think, actually, the issue is not so much just women, but anybody, any Muslim convert faces... You know, this is another interesting thing where Islam... Or actually, the Quran itself says when somebody is an apostate, 
God will punish them. And the word pretty clearly means in the afterlife. But then Muslim commentators took that and to say we have to kill them now. So it's another interesting, this is just a sideline of where in the history of Islam, they've twisted the Quran to make it more negative against Christians and to make apostasy worse. So now, whatever the Quran says, most of the Muslim world, the standard orthodox belief is that an apostate should be killed. That is followed in some countries, in Saudi, that's happened, in Somalia, last year, quite a number of people who had come to faith in Jesus were beheaded in public, brutally butchered. In Turkey, people don't get killed, although we did have three brothers murdered three years ago, but usually you get kicked out of the family or you lose your job. You know, there's some social ostracism. So what is important and not just OM, but people working with Muslims are are learning is how to help people in their relationship with their family. So something, like I said earlier on, helping people not to go back on day one and say, I've become a Christian. New believers need to witness. And what I've kind of learned is that usually somebody has a close friend, not in the family, who they can really share their heart with. And in Turkey, I used to encourage new believers, who's the friend you can share with? But let's hold it with the family. And in the family, start to talk about God more. Start to talk about answered prayer more. Start to show the family a changed life. Maybe say, you know, I found this New Testament. I'm reading it. It's quite interesting. They need to see the change in your life. They need to see that you respect your father more, that you help your mother more, that you love your siblings more, so that when they understand really what's happened. This might actually be quite good advice for Christians in this country as well. (laughs) They understand that this new faith is not turning you against your family. Because that's how it feels to a Muslim family when the, a child be, says, I'm a Christian. They feel that he's denied them. They, they feel that he's abandoning them. And, and so it's really important that the new believer models greater commitment to his family. And as you say, these are discipleship issues which are true in every culture. And the unfortunate reality with some Muslim converts is that they're becoming Christian out of rebellion. Some of our early guys in Turkey, you know, if you want to upset dad, the best thing you can do if you're a Muslim is to become Christian. That really hurts dad. You know, if a pastor's son here goes and gets drunk, an imam's son if he wants to hurt dad. Michael's only six, so I think it'll be okay. <laughs> I'm speaking from my experience, okay. not yours. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying? They've not got to work on the relationship with the family and demonstrate that this gospel is going to make them a better son and a better brother, a better sister. 
And that wins, win, wins acceptance. And then quite often what happens is that one of the siblings says, hey, you know that book you're reading? I started to read it too. It's cool. And then after a few years, mum starts to say, could you pray for me? And last of all, dad. Because he's got so much pride and position to lose. So younger siblings, older siblings, mother than dad is the, the usual progression in the family. And we need to coach new believers through that. Now there are times when that doesn't work. When we have to be ready to care for people who have fled from their family. And to be family for them. And that's a challenge to the church. One believer from a Muslim background said, I lost my family and what I got was meetings. That's what church meant. It was meetings. It's not family. It doesn't replace the emotional need. And that's a scary challenge for us. But I think if we handle it right, we don't need to face those situations as much as we, we perhaps think we do, as we have in the past. And this thing that we talked about earlier about allowing people to continue to call themselves Muslims as a signal that they're still committed to their community. They love their community. I'm loyal to my nation. This does not mean I've become an enemy. Well, I'm sure you find that very helpful. I remember one of the, the first time I went to Queen's Park Baptist on a Sunday evening, there was a missionary from Saudi Arabia speaking a lady. And two weeks before that, I remember she sharing her story. And two weeks before she was there, her brother had been publicly beheaded in Saudi Arabia for attending a Christian meeting. And here she was standing up at Queen's Park Baptist and talking about how, you know, first of all, she was standing up and speaking publicly. I thought, how could anyone do this? Then she was talking about how she was about to go back and they had a big outreach campaign for their city. And it wasn't like they were hindered in their, in their dream. No. They, they were passionate for touching Muslim lives, uh, even, even in the face of what had just happened in her own family. It's a mistake often to get people out of their situation. I was with our folks who work in Saudi recently, and they were telling me the story of a guy, it was dreams initially, Jesus appearing in dreams, and he was getting gobs of the New Testament direct from Jesus. And, and he, was, he went in for, to, for surgery. When he came around from the anesthetic, he cried out, Jesus, which was a shock for his family <laughs> and a shock for the Filipino nurse. So there was a Christian nurse who was there when he, re- you know, he came out of the anesthetic said, Jesus. So she gave him a New Testament. And that's when he got a scripture and he started to read the New Testament. And, hey, this is the stuff that I, you know, Jesus had shown me this already in my dreams. The family started to harass him and persecute him. And he stood. And there were wonderful, miraculous deliverances. You know, he was thrown out of a car at speed. And he rolled over and got up. They gave him poison and he drank the poison and it didn't touch him. So God was awesomely with him and using him dramatically to witness to his family and society. And then the family said, okay, we can't get you to back off, so we're going to start persecuting your wife and kids. 
And that's when he threw the towel in and, and fled. He fled to Sweden. And the tragedy is that what he found in the church in Sweden was so lukewarm and insipid and compromised that he started to doubt. And in the end, he got fed up with it and he went back to Saudi. And today that man, if you ask him if you believe in Jesus, he'll say yes. But he's not doing anything. He's lost the fire. And I've, I, I have seen that pattern and I start to preach that. As long as possible, hang on in there. Because if you run, there's a real danger that you'll lose what you've got. Isn't it tragic that in the West we've got, the so-called Christian West is one of the most pathetic, lukewarm kind of environments for, and typically believers are wishy-washy, uncourageous, and it doesn't affect their life, so just they turn up on Sunday. That's right. Whereas what he was living out in Saudi was radical. Total New Testament. Wow. Let's hear appreciation for Julian.